Let's see, my own. There we go. Uh, recently, I heard a story. A friend told me a story about one of his friends who uh, took his four-year-old son trick-or-treating. And as they're moving from door to door, they got to one of those doors that has like one of the ring doorbells, you know, where like you ring the doorbell and then like the person inside stares at you and decides if they want to answer the door or not. Um, and, it, you know, it's kind of like doing this thing around the, around the actual doorbell. And after a minute or so, the dad's like, all right, man, let's, let's go to the next house, right? And the son's like, dad, wait, it's just loading. Just loading. You know that feeling, right? The blue circle in windows, or if you're a Mac user, you got the, so the spinning beach ball little spiky ball on your phone, or maybe like your Echo Dot, the thing that spins around. It's, we've, we've become accustomed to this idea that that means we have to wait, right? Who here likes waiting? Put your hand up if you like waiting. Okay, we have no sociopaths in this room, so I'm thankful for that. Uh, there's a Panda Express in Fort Wayne, and I, I don't get it. This is no exaggeration. Every time I drive by, there's 15 cars in the parking lot. And, and listen, like, I love Panda Express, there is nothing that I like waiting long enough for. Uh, you know, like I'm never going to wait 30 minutes in line for Panda Express. The Chipotle next door always has three people in line, right? And yet people will be lined literally all the way out to the line for Panda Express. Who are these people? I don't know. Did you know that the average person waits in line for five years? Five years of your life you're going to spend waiting in line. And six months of that is spent at traffic lights. Six months of your life. Waiting is awful. And you know, Amazon has totally capitalized on this idea, right? Because they know that people hate to wait. And so they will do just about anything, uh, even take a loss on a sale, um, to make sure that they get you your package on time. And I'll tell you what, this pandemic has made things a little bit weird, right? Those of us who have Amazon Prime, some of us have had to, if you get this, we have to wait three days for our packages to get here. Three days. It's unconscionable, right? I ordered something for Heather for our anniversary uh, two and a half weeks ago. And it still hasn't gotten here. And guys, our anniversary was last Saturday, right? So like, waiting. It's not fun. It's the worst. And, and we wait for all sorts of things, right? Waiting for the light to turn green. Waiting for the promotion you've been hoping for. Waiting to get your license, right? Um, waiting for your stimulus check. Waiting for someone to pop the question. Waiting for justice to be served or to feel like you're equal. Waiting to find a job in your field just waiting for your food at a restaurant, right? We have become accustomed to waiting, but it doesn't seem like we ever actually get used to it, or it never gets any easier. Have you ever waited for something so long that you forgot about it? <laughs> any, any Menards shoppers here? You send in, like, the rebate thing, and then, like, like, three months later, you're like, oh, man, I got, like, two bucks to spend at Menards the next time I go, right? You ever waited for something so bad that it just about drove you crazy? I think, if, I'm a, if I was a betting person, I think I can confidently say that none of you have ever waited so long for something that, like, you've died waiting for it. I think I could, I could say that comfortably. Um, but the person we're going to talk about today uh, actually did. Um, there's a promise he was waiting for, something he was waiting to be fulfilled, and he waited a solid hundred years and, and never got to see it, see it come to fruition uh, before he died. We're going to talk about that today. We're in a series right now titled Uncertain. You saw the screen. Um, we're exploring stories of people in the biblical story, the biblical narrative, who faced uncertain circumstances. And we're taking a look at a couple things. One, you know, what, what did they do? How did they react in the situation? But more importantly, how did God react in the situation? What was God doing? And what can that mean for us today in our world? And so we spent the first two weeks talking about, we talked about King David two weeks ago. Last week we talked about the story of Job. And so today we're going to dive into the story of Abraham. Now many of you know Abraham, right? Abraham had many sons and... Many sons had, thank you, all right, 
He's one of the most important people uh, in both the Christian and the Jewish faith, right? Because um, it is to this man that God makes a promise that's forever going to change the world. Now, we first hear of Abraham uh, at the tail end of Genesis chapter 11, which is kind of a dividing piece in, in the book of Genesis. That's where, like, it's, it's a very important, pivotal piece in the book of Genesis and the narrative. And um, we hear about him at the end of this genealogy. Uh, his father, his name was Terah, had picked up his family from this place called Ur of the Chaldeans. It was this bustling metropolis near Babylon, and uh, he started to move them to a land called Canaan, but for some reason he got, like, I say halfway, he went like this, so I, I don't know what he was doing, but uh, he got to a place called Haran, and he just stopped, right? Um, and that's where we find out uh, about Abraham. And, and so Abraham's father, Terah, he dies, and uh, things get immediately interesting because Abraham immediately becomes the focal point of the story. At that point, the first few verses of Genesis 12 will be on the screen. It says this. It said, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to a land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you'll be a blessing to others. I'll bless those who bless you and curse you, and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So you're Abraham. Right? Like, you, your family has been uprooted already. You've traveled to this far-off place. Your father has passed away. And then seemingly out of nowhere, this deity appears to you, speaks to you, and decides to promise you a huge family, a lot of fame, and to bless the entire world through you. And you're thinking, like, honey, what was in that rice we ate last night? Right? Like, what is going on? But God shows up and he makes a, propo- he makes a proposal to Abraham, promises him three things. One, he's going to give him a huge family. Not just a family. He says it's going to become a nation. That's how big this family is going to be. Number two, he says he's going to bless him and he's going to make him famous. And how's that going to happen? What's that going to look like? Abraham's going to be rich, y'all. Like herds for days, okay? And people are going to know his name because he's going to be ridiculously wealthy. And then number three, Finally, as if all of that wasn't enough so far, right? I'm going to make you filthy rich, and I'm going to give you a huge family. God says he's going to bless the entire world through Abraham somehow. What does Abraham have to do in this deal? He's just got to move to Canaan, right? Now, it's not like he just could pack up a U-Haul and, like, make the trek to Canaan, right? I mean, this is, he's packing up everything he owns, all of his, you know, all of his possessions, all of his animals, all of his people, and it's like a 500-mile journey. It's not, not necessarily something simple, but, uh, but nonetheless, that's, that's what he has to do, and, and Abraham doesn't miss a beat, right? The very next line is this. It says, so Abram departed as the Lord had instructed, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, and all his wealth, his livestock, and all the peoples he had taken into his household at Haran, and he headed for the land of Canaan. Abraham didn't waste any time at all, right? And I guess if, he's probably thinking, like, look, I'm 75 years old. If I got to make a 500-mile journey, we should probably get this thing going, right? Like, let's, I'm not getting any younger. And I'd like to stand here and tell you that, like, it was smooth sailing uh, for Abraham, but that's not really the truth. Not so much. In fact, he eventually gets to Canaan, and he kind of just keeps going right on through. And he ends up in Egypt um, because there's a famine. That might sound familiar to you. And, uh, and when he gets there, he's afraid that the Egyptians are going to see his wife and think that she's beautiful and uh, want to take her for themselves and then just kill him, right? And so he makes up this lie, this story that uh, it's actually his sister, and uh, it actually works out. And, and on its face, that might seem like a really, uh, really smart move on Abram's part, right? Like a really, a really just a, is a, is a cunning, cunning move. Um, but if we dial it back for just a second and think about what was really happening there, right? God had promised Abraham a family, not just a family, a nation, right? That's why he moved to begin with. 
You can't start a family without a kid, right? Abraham doesn't have a kid at this point. You can't have a kid without a wife, and you certainly can't have a kid if you're dead. And so, while it maybe seemed like a, like a prudent move on, on Abraham's part, what this really was was a failure on his part to trust God's promise to him. Abraham felt like he needed to take matters into his own hands so that he could prolong his life and make it possible for God to come through for him, right? And that wouldn't be the last time that Abraham took matters into his own hands. Uh, if we fast forward just a few chapters, uh, we get to a pretty critical moment in the story. God kind of renews his promise uh, to Abraham, and at the begin- it'll be on the screen. At the beginning of chapter 15, this exchange happens between Abraham and God. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision, and he said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you, and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, oh, Sovereign God, what, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You've given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. And the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir. For you'll have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside, and he said to him, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if you can. That's how many descendants you'll have. And Abraham and Abram believed the word, the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness because of his faith. So here's Abram saying, Abraham, um, hey, I did what you asked, God. <laughs> I did what you asked. I'm looking around. I don't, I don't see a son, much less a family, right? Um, what are you doing? And God replies, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be your heir. And the narrator even says that Abraham believed God, and God considered that a righteous act. So what does Abraham do? Very next story. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, uh, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, so go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and he gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Once again, Abraham just takes matters right into his own hands, right? And listen, if you're married, I don't have to tell you what the rest of that story looked like between, uh, between Hagar and Sarah, right? It wasn't, it wasn't pretty. Eventually, though, Abraham does finally have a son with Sarah. Part of the promise begins to, begins to unfold, begins to come true, be fulfilled. And, and I wish that I could say everything just fell into place at that point. But, but it really doesn't. Um, if God's promise was to bring blessing to the whole world through Abraham's family, it feels like Abraham's family's entire goal was to just mess that up somehow. There's massive conflict between his sons. Eventually, Isaac has two sons of his own, and the younger steals the birthright, steals all the blessings from the older. Um, then he gets double-crossed by his uncle and ends up marrying sisters, and there's a lot of chaos there. And, and, uh, and he has 12 sons. Eventually, they sell one of their brothers into slavery, and that eventually leads to the whole family being moved to Egypt. And we know that over time, they become slaves for hundreds of years in Egypt. And, and there's, there's a little bit of hope when God pulls them out of that. He pulls them out of slavery and brings them back into the land of Canaan. And, uh, and, and then we get to a point where finally— Things start to seem like they're coming together. You got King David. He unifies this kingdom, and um, things are looking up. But David and Solomon, they both fall short of being this idea of the person who, who God's going to bring blessing to the world through. And so um, Israel eventually splits into two kingdoms. Both of them end up being carried away to exile. Um, they finally come back. They're trying to rebuild their life um, 
But God sends warning after warning after warning, sends these prophets to him to say, this is how you're living is wrong. It's going to get you in trouble. And after a while, um, God just finally goes silent. 400 years of silence. No prophets, no warnings, nothing. Just total silence. And, and it, seems, it seems like if you're navigating the story, it seems like God's just given up at that point. He's given up on his promise to Abraham to bless the whole world. Maybe Abraham's family just, just royally messed the whole thing up. But through it all, through the, dis- the failure and the dysfunction and the chaos and the evil and the confusion and the silence, God was still working. He hadn't forgotten anyone. You see, God made Abraham a promise, but he allowed Abraham, as he does for all of us, the free agency, the free will, the license to make decisions, right? To make his own choices. He didn't force Abraham. He didn't coerce Abraham into anything. In fact, the entire story started with God simply saying, if you do this, I'll do that, and the ball's in your court. And he gave that same, same promise to Isaac, the same promise to Jacob, and, and all throughout the lineage, um, people had the, cho- the, the ability to make their own choices about whether or not they were going to be a blessing, but they just made a mess of things. And I, I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. But God never stopped working to bring good. We can see that now. We see in retrospect that God never stopped working, even when people couldn't see it, even when people couldn't understand it. God was always working to bring good, and he kept his promise. Paul tells us in Galatians uh, chapter 4, he says that when the set time had fully come, and if you're Abraham's family, you're thinking, man, that would have been nice to know 2,000 years ago. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. God sent Jesus to be the covenant keeper on our behalf and the one through whom all people will be blessed so that we could be a part of the family of God. In his letter to the Romans, Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 5, he says, at just the right time, just the right time, while we were still sinners, while we were still powerless, God died for the ungodly, or Christ died for the ungodly. And when Abraham's family had gotten to the point where they were completely hopeless, completely powerless, beyond, uh, beyond any help, God was faithful and he kept his promise. And later in that same letter, Paul tells us that uh, for, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many, to us, to them? Just as unexpected and unlikely as God calling a random old guy with no children to become the father of many nations, God fulfills his promise to that same man through the birth the death and the resurrection of a carpenter's boy in a tiny town who grew up to be a homeless preacher that was killed as an enemy of the state. God's promise to Abraham was that he would bless the whole world through his descendants. And even though it makes no sense to us at all, he did that by becoming human himself and allowing the full course of evil to run right on through him and to kill him. And then he proved, then he proved that as he rose from the dead, even the full course of human evil couldn't derail his goodness, couldn't derail his love, couldn't derail his promise to bless the world, including you and me. And in doing so, God taught us something pretty important. He taught us that nothing is irredeemable. Nothing is irredeemable. No matter what your circumstances are, God can redeem those. If, if he can take the ugliest, most perfected form of torture, right, a, this device that they use for torture, and turn that into a symbol of one of the most beautiful things in the world, then he can bring good from your circumstances. If he can use his own death to bring blessings to the entire world, he can certainly work with whatever 
we have to offer him. And because of that act of supreme love, you and I can trust Jesus with our lives. We can, we can, trust, we can trust his words to us. Jesus promises his followers that he'll, he'll always be with us, that he'll never leave us, he'll never, he's never going to go anywhere. The author of Hebrews reminds us that the Jesus, that God says, I, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you, and that promise is still for us today. Jesus tells the Jewish leaders in John 5, when they're uh, getting upset about him working on the Sabbath, he says, listen, my father is always working. He's never stopped. We can have confidence that God's right here in the midst of uncertainty, that we're never abandoned, that we're never left to be alone in our own uncertainty, that God is always at work and always working to bring good, the most good, with what we give him. You know, when I set out to do, whenever I set out to do message prep, um, I always, always look for a bottom line, um, a takeaway, a truth, something to encourage you, something to move you forward, uh, you know, in action as you follow Jesus with your life. Uh, and, and this is normally where I would make the turn, right? I'd make the turn from the story of Abraham to, to our story, right? What does this mean for us, the application point? I want to tell you what God has for you in all of this. And I found that often the one doing the, the preparing um, needs the message the most. And as I, as I work through the story of Abraham, looking for the application point, looking for the bottom line, uh, what I found uh, was notes of my own life scattered throughout that story. I'm just going to share it with you in hopes that, that you can connect with it, uh, that it that is meaningful to you. Um, I'm assuming most of you know this by now. If you don't, um, this will... You'll hear this now, but uh, this is my last Sunday at Gateway. Um, and when Tony asked me to preach this week, uh, he said, make it personal. I said, I don't really want to do that. That's not, that's not the way I like to do things. I just wanted to preach practical, applicable truth to you. I didn't want any of this to be about me. Because I never, I never, I never want uh, to detract from, from what God's trying to say, right? But, but in my insistence that I didn't want any of this to be about me at all, God checked me and said, listen, you're seeing yourself in, in this, and if you can't be honest about that yourself, how in the world do you expect anybody out there to be honest with what it means for them, right? If you can't own up to it, if you can't see yourself in this, then don't expect anybody you, you say anything to to believe it either. And so um, here we are. You know, two years ago, um, I was living in, uh, my family was living in Kankakee, Illinois. I was finishing up my sixth school year as the student pastor at uh, Kankakee First Church, the Nazarene, we called it K-1. I felt like I was in a really good groove. My leadership staff was strong. It had grown. They, they, were, they were just healthy, and, and it looked like good things were on the horizon. I had just, just finished, you know, my first group of seventh graders had just graduated high school, so I had taken a, a, a class all the way through the years of student ministry, and um, good things were happening. But in the midst of it all, uh, my wife and I began to uh, have a sense that something was shifting. And make no mistake, I had no intention of leaving First Church, none at all. Um, but it was certainly fair to say that we found ourselves kind of in the midst of an uncertain time. Two years prior to that, in August of 2016, um, our lead pastor of 16 years, his name was Ed Heck, um, went to a routine doctor's appointment and came back with a diagnosis of uh, aggressive late-stage prostate cancer. And one month later, on Labor Day weekend, he passed away. And uh, to say that times were uncertain is an understatement. Uh, as a church, we were reeling. We didn't, we didn't know what to do or what was going to come next. And after eight months with an interim pastor, um, our new lead pastor, Andrew, Andrew Twible, was, introduced, on, uh, was intru- introduced to us with great excitement. 
Andrew is young, energetic, he's an infectious personality, a natural leader, charismatic guy. Some of us already knew him pretty well. Everybody, everybody loved Andrew. We were so excited. And so his first Sunday was Easter Sunday 2017, and, and it felt like such a celebration for a church that had been through a whole lot. On the week of January 7, 2018, um, 33-year-old Andrew was diagnosed with a uh, late-stage glioblastoma in his brain, brain cancer. And uh, soon after he had brain surgery, he began treatment. He's gone through so many trials, so many clinical trials, so many different treatments. By the grace of God, Andrew is still with us. Um, his life has never been the same. I don't know how much longer he'll be with us. Um, but to say that the following months were uncertain, again, would be an understatement. Um, when I look back, it just kind of feels like a blur. You know, last week we talked about the story of Job. And, and like Job, me, my family, our staff, our church, were just like, God, how could you let this happen again, right? And amidst all of that, um, my family had been preparing uh, to move out of our house and into a university apartment. My wife had accepted a job as a resident director at Olivet Nazarene University, and so we were going to be moving into university housing and uh, living with students, and, and I, I don't know exactly when it was, but at some point, my wife just began to sense in her heart, like, we're, I, don't, I don't know that we're actually going to ever make that move. The RD position paid room and board, but didn't pay a salary, and so Heather had begun, you know, early in the year, had begun looking for part-time jobs around the area. She was hilariously overqualified for them, um, and uh, she was getting nowhere, you know, not even calls back. Um, and to compound things, we had had a buyer on our house, right? We obviously had to sell our house if we were going to move. And um, we had taken our house off the market while, while the stuff was being finalized. And, uh, and then after, I don't know, a long time, a long time, uh, the whole thing fell through. The, comp- or the company, the, uh, the couple that was going to buy our house uh, apparently broke up. And uh, so all of a sudden, um, we're at the end of June. We're about to face a major life transition. Um, and we're back at square one, and, and of course, life for the church staff is, and, and church family is still chaotic, uh, as we've been operating without the direction of a lead pastor, not sure what's going to happen there. And life felt incredibly uncertain for us uh, at that point. And so in late June, with no offers on the house, no job offers in front of us, um, one night, I remember it was, it was VBS week, and and Heather said, what, what would you think about me just potentially sending some resumes outside of our area? I thought, well, I mean, what's the worst that happens, right? We decide to turn one down. You know, I mean, I suppose it can't hurt. After months and months and months of, uh, of applying places, I certainly didn't think that within a couple days she'd, she'd receive two offers out of state, and we'd have to be making some decisions about what that, what that meant for us. Um, I wasn't ready to leave First Church. That totally tied me up in knots. I didn't know what to do. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time praying. Uh, I talked to some of my uh, close friends. I sought leadership or direction from some of my leadership. Prayed some more. I, I just, I didn't know what to do. I remember who I was, where I was sitting, who I was talking to, what they said when I realized it's time for us to, time for us to move on. Um, and I knew that God was moving us elsewhere, and I wanted to be obedient to that. And I knew that it was God's idea, because I would never in a million years have chosen to do it that way. Never in a million years. Call it, call it my Abraham moment if you want to. 
And maybe it wasn't as dramatic as Abraham having to pack up everything he owned and, and trek 500 miles, but, but it certainly seemed daunting. All I knew is that we were moving, Heather had a job, and that was it. That, that's what we knew. And so in August 2018, we moved uh, to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and, and we visited Gateway in, in September, and we loved it. You guys were incredible. Uh, Nancy Russ, still the first, I still remember the first person that I met when I walked in, shoved a mug in our hand and, and, and welcomed us in, and um, that was incredible. And it was a microcosm of who this church is. And so and Tony and I connected, and five months later, uh, I joined the staff here, and it seemed like things were all falling into place. Um, like, God, this is, this is where you've had us. This is where we're going. You've been the kindest, the warmest, the most welcoming family and friendly group of Jesus followers I've ever had the privilege of being a part of. You welcomed our family right in. You've loved me well, you've loved my wife well, and thank God you've loved my daughter well. This is an amazing church that is primed to do incredible things in this community. I'm thankful for your impact on my life. I'm thankful for your impact on my family's life. I'm thankful for the things I've learned from you, for the ways that you've challenged me, for the ways that I've grown during my time here. And I can only hope, can only hope that maybe I've, I've had that effect on some of your own lives. Uh, at the beginning of this year, in January, the end of January, I had a conversation with Tony. I said, I said you know, Tony, I'm, I'm struggling with, uh, with this combination of my full-time job and, and, and the distance um, from the church. Those two factors are making it really difficult for me to feel like I could, I could be connected well here and uh, making it very difficult for me to feel like I could be an effective pastor uh, for you, especially for our students. And, uh, and I didn't see a way for that to change, you know. Um, we weren't in a position to just up and move, and, um, and it's not like I could, you know, just take on a full-time job here. And so, um, you know, I didn't feel like it was fair to the church. I didn't feel like it was fair to the students, um, to the other staff, that I wasn't able to give more of myself, that I wasn't able to be more... Uh, intimately involved in the life of Gateway. And so I told him, you know, I think it's, it's time for me to step down at the end of the school year. And so a year and a half later, um, here I am again, stepping into some uncertainty. Uh, and unfortunately, um, for some of you, that means that you are as well, especially our students. My district superintendent in Kankakee told me something that I'll never forget. Um, it's kind of hard to swallow at first. He said, when you leave a church, you have to firmly believe that it is not only the best thing for you, but that is the best thing for that church as well. And when you believe that, then you'll know that it's right. And that, that's a punch in the gut. I mean, that's hard to take. That's a hard pill to swallow, right? That's a hit to your pride. Um, but while it was painful, I believed it then, and I believe it now. I do believe uh, that in the long term, this is what's best for Gateway. But I still struggle with feeling like I'm abandoning, abandoning my family. Um, in retrospect, if I'm being completely honest... You know, I have to wonder if uh, maybe like Abraham, I got a little too far ahead of myself, uh, trying to take care of me, trying to forge my path ahead, do what I thought was best. You know, did I somehow get out in front of God and, and affect negatively the, the lives of other people because of my eagerness to be, to be a pastor again? These are, things I, these are things I honestly wonder. I'm being pretty, pretty vulnerable with you guys uh, today. You know, I want you to, I'm letting you, letting you in. Um, I want to be crystal clear. And if I have to say this five times today, I'll say it five times, but I want to I be crystal clear about what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that my time here has been a mistake. And I don't want you to hear that. I, I hope you understand from the bottom of my heart, I am so thankful for, for this last year and a half. I'm incredibly grateful for all of you, and I firmly believe that God wastes nothing. He's always working to bring the most good out of the things that we do with our free agency, with our free will, with our choices. So I believe that in the end, God is going to use all of this for good. 
for your story and for mine. Still, I have to wonder if ignoring some of those potential challenges up front has caused unnecessary heartache. And if so, I'm sorry for that. I am. Like Abraham, I'm not entirely sure what's next. I can say with the utmost certainty that God has called me to student ministry, and I don't, I don't doubt that. I still believe that. I don't think that's changed. I believe, when, I know beyond a shadow of doubt that God called us to move to this place. But right now, I'm having a difficult time seeing how those two things come together again um, in the future. And so that's where I'm at. I'm uncertain. But I, like I said, I, I don't like talking about me, so that's enough about me. I wanna, let's, let's talk about you for a moment. Because maybe you can relate to those feelings of, of uncertainty right now. Different circumstances, same feelings. Maybe you're feeling uncertain because of health issues of your own or health issues for someone close, close to you, someone you love. Maybe you're feeling uncertainty in the midst of, of this pandemic. You've lost your job temporarily or permanently, and you don't, you don't know what that's going to look like. You don't, you're not even sure how you're going to pay this month's bills. Stacked up against that, my stuff feels pretty pity, honestly. Maybe you see your marriage crumbling all around you, and, uh, and you feel scared or guilty or maybe even resigned. Maybe you're navigating family transition, your kids are getting ready to leave, or maybe your kids are coming back after college. Maybe you desperately want to have a child and you haven't been able to do so. Perhaps there's a mountain of debt that you don't ever see going away and, or an addiction that has just taken root and is destroying your life bit by bit. Maybe you're a student and you're uncertain right now. I don't know what fall's going to look like. I don't know if I'm going back to school. I don't know if I'm going to college. I don't know what's next. One of my former students um, from First Church, um, you'll see her mom a little bit later in a video, but uh, she's black, and she texted me the other day. She's like, honestly, like, sometimes my dad leaves the house, and I don't know if he's going to come home. And make of that what you will, but um, that's uncertainty for Hannah. Maybe like the people of Israel, you're experiencing a crisis of faith. God feels silent, feels distant. At best, distant. At worst, non-existent. And look, maybe you've made some mistakes too. Maybe you've contributed to your own feelings of uncertainty right now. Like Abraham, you got ahead of yourself, uh, you failed to trust in the promises of God, and now you're stuck holding the bill. I don't know. You know the feeling of hopelessness, the feeling of abandonment and defeat in the midst of uncertainty. Maybe you, maybe you feel that today. And normally, look, this is where I would have a bottom line for you, right? I would have a statement, something hopefully that was short and simple and memorable, something for you to take. But to practice instead, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have that. <laughs> I don't have a bottom line for you today. What I do have for you, though, is an invitation. An invitation uh, to, to join me in believing that God's not done, that he hasn't forgotten us, that he's still working. You know, I'm a, I'm a pretty rational person, pretty logical person. I'm not prone to emotionalism. I'm not prone to sensationalism. I don't like platitudes. I find them to be empty and meaningless. Um, and a lot of times, I fi- you know, I find myself having a pretty skeptical reaction to somebody saying what I'm about to say to you today. And so if you hear this and you feel that way, I get it. But I believe this with, the, with everything in me. That God is working and he never stops. Even when he seems silent, absent, non-existent, he's always working to bring good because he is good. He doesn't coerce us. He doesn't force our hand. In love, he gives us total agency and free will to make our decisions, but in his goodness, he is always at work 
to bring good. His promises are true. I don't offer that to you as an empty platitude. I tell you that because I believe it with everything in me. That God is true to his word. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. I've seen it throughout scripture. I've seen it in the lives of others. I've seen it in my own life time and again. The Jesus that we serve gets it. He took on skin so that he could experience what we experience. And if you think he doesn't get uncertainty, I point you to the moment where the night of his crucifixion, he sat in a garden and he said, God, why have you forsaken me? He gets it. You can relate. That same Jesus tells us the Father never, ever stops working and that he's never going to forsake us. Sometimes I just need that reminder. When God seems distant, when I look forward and I see nothing but uncertainty, that he's still working. So my invitation for you today is pretty simple. It's simply this. In the midst of your own uncertainty, believe. Like Abraham, a childless man uprooted from his family, from his way of life, and taken to a strange land, believe that God is not only still present in your uncertainty, but he is actively working and he is near. And so I invite you to believe with me, to trust that God keeps his promises to us, that he never stops working, and that when you see no way forward, God can make one for you. Here's how I want to close today. A few weeks ago, my sister, who's a worship pastor in Pasadena, she sent me uh, something that she, had, she was able to be a part of um, with, the, with a group of other Nazarene worship pastors all over the country and really all over the world. Um, these, these leaders work together to record a choir piece uh, from their homes all over in the middle of quarantine. And it is beautiful. It's timely. And I want to share it with you today. And, and in these next few moments, here's what, I, here's what I invite you to do. I invite you to just simply sit where you are and soak in the truth of this song. Listen to the words. Close your eyes if you need to. Whatever. But just listen to this communal declaration that God is the light in our darkness that he keeps his words, his word, and that even when we don't see it, he's still working. So let these words wash over you and renew today your belief in a God who is faithful.
Light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. You are
I don't, I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you hear that and it reminds you of a time that God showed up for you. Or maybe right now you, like Abraham, you're steeped in uncertainty. You're wondering why God is so silent. Does it, why does it feel like he's forgotten me? But we have a choice we can make today. And the choice is to believe, to proclaim that God, regardless of our circumstances, never stops working, even when we can't see it. And if you choose to believe that today, I'm going to invite you to stand and sing the rest of this song with me as we close this morning. Jesus, I can't speak for everyone in here, in this room, but I know that many of us right now are in the midst of some real uncertainty. Some of us are holding it together okay, leaning on you in the middle of the unknown, and we thank you for the way that you're sustaining us. But others of us are drowning, and we need today to pray the words of the man who asked you to heal his son. He asked if you could, you told him that anything can be done for those who believe, and his cry became, help my unbelief. Help our unbelief when it feels like we can't see you. Help our unbelief when we're tempted to believe that you've abandoned us. Help our unbelief when we struggle to believe you'll, you'll never abandon us. In our uncertainty, may we be certain of one thing, and that is that you are faithful, that you keep your promises, that you are always with us. And thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for never giving up on us. May we never give up on you. And Jesus, I want to thank you for this church for this group of your followers called Gateway who have been a blessing and a family to me and Heather and Claire. And I know you're priming this church to be an incredible force for good, for your gospel in this community, to all generations, for your kingdom. May your kingdom come in our hearts. May your kingdom come in our community as it is in heaven. And may it bring glory and honor to you, for you alone are worthy, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, I'm going to... Go ahead. I really appreciate you, Brandon. I appreciate your vulnerability this morning. Go ahead and have a seat. You have... You've put it all out there for us. You did it for this church. Even more, you did it for our Lord and Savior. And I appreciate that means a lot to me personally. I've been challenged uh, today by increasing my faith in what God can do in uncertainty. I thank you for that. As Brandon said, today is 
his last Sunday. And he said he wanted to make it crystal clear that his time here was not a mistake. And brother, it was not. Thank you. Thank you. You came to our church when the youth ministry, the teens ministry, uh, was questionable and indeed uncertain. And your journey brought you to this door, not by coincidence. Nancy isn't a stellar greeter by accident. You came here because God was guiding your feet, and you said, God, I will follow where you lead me. You are an answer to prayer. This church loves you. Our teens love you. And if they, they could, I'm sure that they would just smother you with all kinds of stuff that would embarrass you. And I encourage that. However, that's not happening right now. But Brandon, we love you. We love Heather and Claire, and I'm very certain that they are watching. We have gotten to know your family, and we have fallen fallen in love with you. You have left a mark on this church. And where God takes you, We are sending you. We're not trying to hold you back. We want to cover you with our prayers and send you with grace. I want us to pray for Brandon. And Heather and Claire. Yeah, I'm emotional. It's okay. As a pastor, I understand what it is to leave a family and not know where you're going. I want us to pray for you as a church and say, we'll see you later. It's not a goodbye. So let's pray. And if you will continue to pray for Brandon and Heather and Claire, even though they may not be here in person, stand up. If you will continue to support their ministry wherever God takes them, I want you to stand up. And even if you're at home watching online, we can't see you, but God can. If you're going to support this awesome brother, stand up at home. Brandon, there's not a single person sitting here. Heather and Claire... They're standing for you, too. And we're going to pray right now for you. God, you are a God of certainty. There is no question that goes unanswered in you. We know that you brought Brandon and Heather and Claire to this church for a specific purpose. And you have said... They have fulfilled that purpose here. We have 
been blessed by their ministry to our families, to our teenagers. God, you have been preached, you have been taught, you have been loved, you have been served by this man and his wife and his daughter. We are better because of what you have done through this family. And God, like Abraham, you have called Brandon away. We don't know the destination. We just know it's not gateway. We thank you as a church for using Brandon here, for allowing us to shower him with love. But God, I pray that you would be with Brandon right now as, as questions are in his mind. I pray that you would take a, a burden off of his shoulders to know that a very certain, unwavering, and true God says, I got this. Mm-hmm. God, we are sending Brandon away with blessings and grace and with love and heavy hearts. We pray that you would guide him wherever it is that you have for him. And be with Heather and Claire. We will miss them. They have touched our lives as well. May you take them to a church that has been prepared by you for them. May you continue to use this family for your glory. We thank you, God, for being certain when we are uncertain. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Andy, and just thank you, church. um, I love you, and it's an honor to call you family. If it's okay with you, you know, the ushers are going to release you in a moment, but I'd just like to send you with a blessing, if that's all right, from from Paul's letters, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. This is what he says. He says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with the hope of the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.